So I'm going to get started because, as you can see, we have a lot of people with us this evening. So I have a lot of uh, um, very important, wonderful information about them to share with you. I'm Louise Mira, for those of you who don't already know me. Um, I'm uh, very pleased to be the president of this splendid organization and to see so many of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium this evening. Uh, tomorrow we open a new exhibition, The First Jewish Americans. Uh, we walk through it this morning with the press. It's a rather astonishing show that traces the, the um, earliest Jewish people not only to reach our shores, but first to reach places like Mexico and the Caribbean and Brazil. Uh, it's um, in many ways an astonishing story with some documents that have never been seen before by the public, so I know you will want to see it uh, for certain. Sorry, it opens on Friday. Tonight's program, Surveillance, the Battle for Freedom and Security, is the Bonnie and Richard Reese Lecture in Constitutional History and Law. And I'd like to thank uh, Richard and Bonnie uh, for supporting this wonderful series, which uh, is allowing us to bring fabulous scholars like those on the stage to this auditorium. Rick is the vice chair of our board, so I'd like to thank him as well for all that he does on behalf of the New York Historical Society. Thanks so much, Rick and Bonnie. Okay. Uh, tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. The Q&A will be conducted uh, via written questions on note cards. You should have received a note card and pencil as you were entering the auditorium. Staff members are still circulating in the auditorium, and they will be collecting cards later on in the program. Um, tonight, there will be no formal book signing following the program. So we are thrilled indeed to welcome five incredible legal scholars to the New York Historical Society this evening. Susan Herman is the president of uh, the American Civil Liberties Union, where she's formerly served on the board of directors and as general counsel, both positions also formerly held by U.S. Supreme Court Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Professor Herman, big shoes. <laughs> professor Herman also serves as Centennial Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School, specializing in constitutional and national security law. She's the author of Taking Liberties, The War on Terror, and The Erosion of American Democracy. Kay Sabil Rahman is an assistant professor of law at Brooklyn Law School, a fellow at the New America Foundation, and a Four Freedoms Fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. He serves as the research and design director of the Gettysburg Project and is a former special advisor on inclusive economic development to the de Blasio administration in New York City. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Democracy Against Domination. Samuel Raskoff is professor of law at New York University School of Law and serves as faculty director of the Center on Law and Security. Prior to his appointments at NYU, Professor Raskoff served as Director of Intelligence Analysis for the New York City Police Department. He was the law clerk to U.S. Supreme Court Justice David H. Souter and to Judge Pierre N. Laval of the U.S. Supreme Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. In 2009, he was named a Carnegie Scholar. Matthew C. Waxman is the Liviu Librescu Professor of Law at Columbia University School of Law and is the co-chair of Columbia Law School's Roger Hertog Program on Law and National Security. 
He's also co-chair of the Cybersecurity Center, Columbia University's Data Science Institute, and adjunct senior fellow for law and foreign policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Benno Schmidt, our moderator this evening, is a trustee of this great institution, the New York Historical Society, and also the co-founder of Avenues, the World School. He served as the president of Yale University from 1986 to 1992, and is a former dean at, of Columbia University Law School and former CEO and chairman of Edison Schools. Until June 2016, he served as the, board, as the chair of the Board of Trustees of the City University of New York. He also served as law clerk to Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren. As always, before we officially welcome these august legal scholars to our stage, I want to ask that you please make sure that anything you have that makes a noise, like a cell phone, is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming our guests. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. In case you couldn't figure it out by my advanced aged look, I'm Benno Schmidt, the moderator <laughs> of this uh, distinguished group. Um, uh, we're going to. Um, uh, well, let me say a few words. Our, the subject that we're dealing with tonight, surveillance and security, uh, has deep, deep roots in the history of this country, going well back into the colonial uh, era. Indeed, the exhibition we have the, the, of, of the Battle of Brooklyn and the Revolutionary War, that battle reflected uh, a, an epic failure of surveillance by the, uh, by the Continental Army which failed to under, realize that Great Britain's army had, had located what, what, the, what Washington and his troops thought was a secret path uh, into Brooklyn. And Washington had all the other routes covered and ready for ambush. The British learned about this secret path, used that, came in, and inflicted, uh, had terrible consequences in that particular battle. Of course, the subject uh, is also as, uh, as topical as anything could possibly be today, and seems, uh, to me at least, and I'm interested to hear the views of our panelists, seems to me to, uh, likely that it will continue to be uh, one of the most difficult uh, areas of American law, legislation, checks and balances, uh, Fourth Amendment uh, issues as we grapple with the uh, uh, combined problems of terrorism, wars around the world, the tremendous exponential growth of technology, uh, and try to remain uh, a safe country and one in which uh, our people have a, a degree of freedom and, and, and personal privacy. So. Uh, we, we, it's a historical subject, but it's of, of the utmost uh, consequence uh, today. Uh, I'm going to start by asking each of our panelists just to take two or three minutes to highlight what they think are the key issues uh, in this area today, uh, make whatever uh, few comments uh, they want about each one. Uh, then after we've uh, covered that, we're going to go back into history and look at, uh, at, at how surveillance and security 
were viewed in the colonial period and the revolutionary period uh, during the framing of the Constitution uh, and what our founding uh, fathers and mothers uh, might have uh, thought about the issues that we face uh, today. Then we'll go through what I hope will be the, the most uh, interesting and important two or three or four issues that we've surfaced that are facing us uh, today. And if we have time before questions, I'll ask our, our colleagues here to speculate a little bit about what we may see in the next uh, five to 10 years in this very fast changing uh, area. With that, Susan, let me turn it to you. Thank you very much. And it's a pleasure to be here tonight. My thanks to everyone who worked so hard on organizing this program. Now, I don't think that this was intentional, and most of you may not realize this, but today is a very special day. It is the 15th anniversary of the passage of the USA Patriot Act today. So before you say happy birthday, uh, <laughs> to me, it is understandable that in the fall of, 19, of 2001, after, in the panicky days following 9-11, that the Patriot Act was setting out to lay a number of dragnets to try to prevent terrorism. And that was the basic theory. Let's give the government more authority, more tools to intercept and obstruct terrorism. That's in the title of the act, including a number of supersized surveillance provisions. Now, of course, it's logically possible that, you know, that you're going to find more terrorists and, and prevent more terrorism the more tools you give the government. But I think that although we've had one conversation after Edward Snowden's revelations that led to some amendments of one of those laws, we haven't begun to reckon with the costs and the benefits that we're actually getting 15 years later. So in terms of the benefits, one thing that's really frustrating about this area is that we don't know what the benefits are. First of all, because there's tremendous secrecy. The government doesn't tell us what they're investigating. And second of all, it's almost impossible to prove a negative. People sometimes say to me, well, you know, we must be doing something right because we haven't had another major attack. So I don't have to tell you about post hoc and propter hoc, right? So you know, that's one thing. What are the benefits? We'd love to know that, but we really don't know a lot about that. On the other hand, most people assume that there aren't really any costs. The two things that people say to me all the time that I have many answers for are, number one, don't we have to give up a little privacy and liberty in order to be safe? And number two, why should I care what the government knows about me if I'm not doing anything wrong? Well, I have a lot of answers that I hope we can get to tonight, including we're spending a lot of money. Uh, some people tell us that the amount of information that we have is actually a distraction, that there's too much of it, and we're having a hard time knowing what to do with it all. The other costs are not only costs in terms of privacy and sort of Fourth Amendment values, but I think very much related to First Amendment values. And this is something I think the framers really understood, that you know, somebody's papers, the contents of the papers, are not just about privacy. It's about freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of religion. But where I want to sort of set the table here, I want to read you one of my favorite quotes by Elaine Scarry about the Patriot Act, which suggests that the problem really is deeper than that. And part of the cost of all this maximizing surveillance and minimizing transparency is really a threat to democracy itself. So here's what Elaine Scarry says. The Patriot Act inverts the constitutional requirement that people's lives be private and the work of government officials be public. It instead crafts a set of conditions in which our inner lives become transparent and the workings of the government become opaque. Either one of these outcomes would imperil democracy. Together, they not only injure the country, but also cut off the avenues of repair. Sam? I think what's striking about this conversation about surveillance and privacy and liberty is that America really is an outlier in this conversation, but not in the way I think that Susan depicted it with all due respect. 
Uh, America is an outlier because for all that we've been guilty of enormous excess, I would say, in the war on terror, the surveillance area has tended to be an area where the United States has been, if anything, more constrained, more ambivalent, less, I would say, all in than our liberal democratic counterparts, let's say, on the European continent. This is an area where we've been historically uncertain about what to do. And I think that uncertainty is really the, the master narrative of what's gone on in this country over the last 15 years, trying to make sense of a world in which the threats are real. No one has to be reminded of Brussels and Paris, and for that matter, New York City of late. This isn't a 15-year-old conversation. This is very much a contemporary conversation. So the threats are real. The need for intelligence, I think, is undisputed. The technology, as Benno said in his opening remarks, precedes a pace such that corporations headquartered in Silicon Valley take as their strategic goal to master all the world's information. So that's what they're trying to do in a world in which the government would seem to also want to know a lot of things in the name of delivering on its security objectives. And yet, of course, there are these powerful uh, countervailing forces in our culture that have led us uniquely among liberal democracies to essentially stave off the creation of a full-on domestic intelligence agency in this country on par with what the Brits have, the Germans have, the French have, the Israelis have, the Australians have, the Canadians have, and so on and so forth. So if anything, I think this is an area where Americans have historically been a little bit more skittish, a little bit more cautious, and a little bit more concerned with getting the balances right. So with all that said, uh, I think the, the real conversation is about American ambivalence in this area. And I would say one more thing. This is an area where, over the last 15 years, there's been a lot of growth and a lot of, I would say, progress that's been made in terms of how we think of overseeing our intelligence apparatus. And where's the main contact come from? Where's the main pressure come from? Not from civil liberties organizations, I would offer, but principally from Silicon Valley. So this is an area where we have a massive industry that is generating enormous profits in the American economy, notwithstanding the latest news from Apple today. Um, and where that industry is essentially misaligned with the national security state, producing, I think, actually quite healthy amount of friction, uh, friction that came to the fore in the debate over cracking the iPhone between Tim Cook and, uh, and the FBI director. We can talk about that some more in a bit. Bill. Great. Well, thanks to everyone. Uh, I think this kind of picks up on uh, both Sam and Susan's comments. I think uh, a big part of this issue for me requires going back to first principles, right? So if we think about what does it mean to live in a democracy and what were some of the core values animating the founding in the first place, uh, I think, well, there are many of them. But for our purposes, I want to highlight two. Uh, one is that the first is that the founders are trying to create a government that worked, right, uh, that could provide for the common welfare. And I think that maybe speaks to some of what, what Sam was getting at. We do need systems that are adapted to the modern age and the kinds of uh, threats and fears that we might have. Uh, but the second set of values was about democracy that Susan uh, alluded to. Um, for the founders, the democracy wasn't just uh, something that you appealed to as a civic virtue of people who served in office. It was assured by the institutional structures that we created. And so that's the heart of the separation of powers, by splitting up the powers of what might have otherwise been a monarchical government into three branches. You assured checks and balances that made sure that government used its powers for the general welfare and not in any arbitrary way. And I think the challenge for us with modern surveillance is that that separation of power structure 
does not really work in uh, really in in any way on the kinds of questions that we're facing. Um, we can get into this more perhaps uh, in the discussion, but judicial review, congressional oversight are not really present in this area. Um, and so I, I think one of the areas we have to be thinking about is what is that 21st century version of the institutional checks and balances that assures that the government uses these powers in a way that's accountable, responsive, uh, and serving the public good, and not prone to some kind of uh, overextensive or arbitrary use. Uh, and Sam alluded to uh, other kinds of innovations here um, in the private sector. Uh, one thing that maybe we'll get a chance to talk about is uh, what, if anything, is happening uh, within the executive branch to try to make the surveillance, uh, the, the FISA courts, for example, uh, more responsive, and whether or not that's been uh, actually effective. We maybe can talk about that a little bit as well. Thanks. Matt? <clears throat> well, thanks. Uh, let me make three introductory report, uh, uh, three introductory points. The first is a, is a historical one about our, our constitutional history, and, and this does go back to the, to the Battle of, of, of Brooklyn. I think for many of us, when we think about the Revolutionary War history and early constitutional history, the, the founding of our Constitution, we think about that as a story that is, that is basically about rights and liberty. That's why the Bostonians threw tea in the, in the, in the bay, for example. Um, and I, I think that's, that's partly right. Uh, I think the Revolutionary War, for example, was largely fought for liberty and the assertion of certain rights, especially then rights as uh, uh, Brit British rights. Um, the story, though, of post-Revolutionary War and the story of the formation of our Constitution was, I think, fundamentally not a story about forming a government uh, that was, or worrying about a government that was too strong. It was worrying about a government that was too weak. The reason the Constitutional Convention was called was, a, was out of a concern that 13 independent states loosely knit together uh, were ineffective at, for, at providing for basic security. And I think the smartest of the founders understood that without a firm basis in security, or what was it then? What was then called national defense, and defense not just about against external enemies, but also enemies within. They had in mind things like Shays' Rebellion. Without without an adequate baseline of security, you would not be either able to protect a public physical security of the people, nor would you be able to safeguard rights, especially over the long term. Uh, the second point I wanted to make is, uh, is, is, is about the relationship between the Constitution and technology. And I think one of the interesting challenges that I think will come out in, um, in, in this conversation is how does constitutional law keep up with changes in technology? Susan, for example, mentioned the First and Fourth Amendment, and I think they're both going to be very important to this, to this conversation. The First Amendment rights to free expression, Fourth Amendment rights to, to privacy. Uh, uh, the way I think about the challenges is, is this. Uh, uh, constitutional law has always had to evolve uh, in order to meet challenges of new technology. Um, but constitutional law tends to change very, very slowly. Courts, the court system is built for constitutional doctrine and constitutional interpretation to change slowly. Cases take a long time to work their way up to the Supreme Court. Courts, the Supreme Court decides narrow threads, pieces of issues one at a time. 
law, so law moves slowly. Technology moves fast and is accelerating. Uh, to me, that's one of the interesting challenges about how does constitutional law uh, uh, regulate 21st century technology. Is, is, is technology is moving faster and faster, but law continues to move slowly. And, I, and, and, and for that reason, I wonder whether constitutional law will be able to keep up with the challenges presented by new technologies as they come online. Uh, the third point I would just make, and, and, and I'll end here, is uh, uh, to think about whether this is uh, sort of a, what's sometimes termed a golden age of surveillance because of technology, or is this, are we in a golden age of freedom? On the one hand, new technologies, um, surveillance technologies, uh, uh, data analytical technologies have given the government unprecedented, unprecedented ability to conduct surveillance um, of our communications, our daily lives, and so on. Uh, that's the golden age of surveillance story. Um, but new technologies have also empowered individuals to, to have their voices heard, not just locally, but globally, for example, in ways that, were, uh, that, that, that could never have been achieved before. New technologies are coming online that allow the uh, individuals to maintain uh, uh, secrecy of vast amounts of information that may be difficult for the government, even, for example, with a judicial warrant to, uh, 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 to crack and, and to penetrate. That's the, that, that's the golden age of freedom story. And so I hope we get a, a chance to, 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 to discuss among us which of those stories is right, or is it a combination of the two? Thank you. Uh, let's take a, a, a few minutes and, and look at our historical roots in the colonial period, the revolution, the, the framing of the Constitution, uh, and try to understand what what principles did the did the did the did the founding generation have in terms of the uh, tension or the balance between. Uh, 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 Surveillance and the need for information, uh, and uh, and personal privacy and security uh, of the country. Who would like to to jump in? I could jump in very briefly and say, look, when we're talking about privacy, and I get this a lot when I talk to my time twenty-something students, I'm struck by the fact that privacy really is a term that is a placeholder for all sorts of concepts and all sorts of ideas that are essentially. Um, <clears throat> subjective, and that each of us imbues um, in the term. So if we kind of think to an 18th or late 18th century concept of privacy, the Madisonian concept of privacy, we might say, the Fourth Amendment as kind of initially conceived, it's not really about privacy in our sense of being free from government surveillance. It was about a prevention against British authorities to exercise general warrants to issue what were called writs of assistance by which they essentially could engage in what Susan referred to earlier, and I think appropriately, as wholesale dragnet surveillance. And the protection that was built into the Fourth Amendment in order to ward off this kind of generalized surveillance was the requirement of particularity. The government would have to assert concretely what it was that it was seeking to obtain from your office or from my home, and so on and so forth. That's very different, and here I'm going to jump, Benno, maybe kind of uh, improperly just for a second, though. That's very different from what Justice Brandeis meant in his canonical law review article in the late 19th century when he's talking about privacy as the right to be let alone. And it's quite different yet again from what my students who worship Edward Snowden 
but who put all of their personal information online for all to see on social media platforms, that's quite different, again, from what they mean by privacy. So when we talk about privacy, there's a Madisonian conception, there's a Brandeisian conception, you know, there's my students' the, the conception. The Madisonian conception, just to follow up on that, was for many, many decades after the Fourth Amendment was adopted. The Fourth Amendment protects, uh, uh, what is it? What's the frame, frame, uh, the phrasing? The right of the people to be secure. The security, security of people uh, in their personal effects, houses, papers, per, and effects. Personal houses, papers, and effects. And for a long time, the courts really looked at that almost as an anti-trespassing right. uh, a principle. That you 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 had a right in your in your home for sure, probably in your office. Uh, in other places where you had an expectation of privacy, the government could not barge in without a demonstration of probable cause to believe that you're engaged in illegal activity and have a judge review that, the reasonableness of that probable cause. That all changed uh, over time, but I think if there were any, if there were one case I'd point to, it's the Warren Court's uh, decision in the Katz That's case good. where, where the, the, the issue was a fellow making a phone call in a public uh, telephone booth. And the uh, authorities uh, had good cause to think he was dealing with gambling information over, over the interstate uh, you know, telephone, telephone lines. And so they, they aimed uh, a microphone at the booth, which was able to, p to pick up what he was saying, but which never uh, even, uh, which never entered the booth, never even attached itself to the booth. So there was no element whatever of trespass uh, into the phone booth. It was just uh, a, 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 an overhearing with an assistance of a mic. And the, uh, as the Supreme Court in 1967 uh, said, that's a violation of the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment protects persons, not just places. And it protects persons when they have a uh, a reasonable expectation of privacy that they're not going to be overheard, interfered with, surveyed, surveilled, uh, and, uh, and, and the court said uh, uh, before that kind of surveillance takes place, you got to have a warrant and you got to go to a judge and, and have probable cause. And since then, uh, after Katz, the Fourth Amendment has been understood much more in the kind of personal terms that that several of you uh, were talked about, and less so as a place-based uh, thing. Susan, you mentioned the First Amendment as a source of, of some of these surveillance uh, concerns and barriers, privacy interests. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I want to say I think the two are connected. And where I want to start here is with Justice Brandeis back in his right. dissent in Olmstead. And I want to get back to what you were saying, which is that the development of constitutional law has really been very slow. And the court has always been had a very hard time with advancing technology. They had a hard time with cars. They made exceptions to the Fourth Amendment. They had a hard time with telephones. And before Katz in 1967, yeah. Yeah. the court in 1928 said, wiretapping of a telephone is not a search and seizure because there's nothing physical. And Justice Brandeis, in a very famous dissent, says, well, wait a minute. Why should the Fourth Amendment be interpreted as something physical? So rather than Katz being a change, I think looking through Brandeis's eyes, we can say that's really a development. And it's an application right. of well, the Well, Katz principles. overruled 
Homestead. Jeff does Oberlin uh, Homestead, uh, and Brandeis yeah. in some respects wins, but he never won completely in terms of the court's doctrine. But I want to get back to what you were saying, Benno, about what were the framers interested in. Now, as Sam was saying, part of the framers' objection was to the writs of assistance and the whole idea of the government having you know, all this power over people. And I think that um, it was customs agents at the time, and they were concerned about the particularity, but I think they were also, at the same time that James Otis was making his argument against the writs of assistance, very important to the Fourth Amendment, John Adams says, when Otis was arguing against the renewal of the writs of assistance, then and there was the child independence born. At the same time as Otis is arguing in 1765, there's also England in Entick versus Carrington is protecting the private papers in people's homes against general searches to rummage through papers. And that court, I think, like the framers, they're worried not only about privacy in terms of are you going to be embarrassed, but the fact that in Benjamin Franklin's desk, if we could guess, there was probably seditious literature. And probably other framers had you know, bottles of rum down in the cellar on which they had not paid the duties. So for one thing, I think that the framers identified with people who wanted privacy in a way that we don't necessarily today. People think only criminals value privacy. Why should I care what the government knows about me if I'm not doing anything wrong? So if the government knows all these things about you, I think there are a lot of chilling effects if the government has all this knowledge about us. Um, for one thing, the Penn has recently, the Authors and Journalists Association, has tried to quantify the chilling effect from all the surveillance that we've seen lately. And the figures are just staggering. If you go on their website, 40% of the people who they surveyed said that they were censoring themselves in, or, or had thought about seriously in their social media um, communications and what they were deciding to research, et cetera. So there's freedom of speech that's being censored. There's association, because if you think that the government is a click or two away from knowing who you're going to associate with, are you going to join splinter political groups? Are you going to you know, do things like that? And then there's also religion. Some of the surveillance that is not common knowledge is the um, tremendous surveillance that's been done on Muslim charities, the financial surveillance. And that really has had a chilling effect on participation, on mosque attendance, and on the willingness of Muslims to contribute to charities, which is a pillar of Islam. So I think there are a lot of connections with the First Amendment. I have one other quote that I'd really like to tell you, because another thing that people say is, OK, the Fourth Amendment was all well and good. There are all these nice ideals. And maybe we can have different accounts of exactly what the ideals are like in terms of characterizing privacy. But people say, John Yu said in one of the Office of Legal Counsel memos, if we're at war on terror, the Fourth Amendment just should not apply. So people have this sense that you know, when America was great, you know, we could afford to live with our ideals. But now that we're facing terrorism, we have to maybe make some exceptions to the Fourth Amendment. So speaking of James Madison, here's what he said in Federalist 41, which I think is just uncanny. No part of the Union ought to feel more anxiety than New York. The great emporium of, uh, emporium of its commerce, the great reservoir of its wealth, lies every moment at the mercy of events and may almost be regarded as a hostage for ignominious compliances with the dictates of a foreign enemy or even with, with rapacious demands of pirates and barbarians. The framers knew about national security problems. They were the ones who watched the White House being burned in 1814. So it's not like the need that we have for more information to um, you know, make us secure is something new. I think the framers understood that just as well as they understood the values of privacy and, and the First Amendment. And what Sam is saying, I don't think we want to start comparing ourselves to other countries. We want to compare ourselves to our own history and to our own principles and ideals. Just on the point that you made in the earlier, Susan, about the First Amendment uh, implications of surveillance and privacy, a very, very important decision uh, for, for, for dealing with that, I think, 
was uh, NAACP versus Alabama in the late 50s, where the Supreme Court, uh, Alabama had demanded of the state NAACP that it submit a list of its members. Uh, the NAACP resisted. Uh, there was no warrant, by the way. It was just a, just a demand by subpoena. Uh, and, and argued that if members' uh, names were revealed, uh, members were losing jobs, facing other kinds of economic and sometimes even violent reprisals, and that, and that the publication uh, of the membership list would cause people to leave the organization, not to join in the first place, and have a chilling effect on, uh, the court said, on the freedom of association that is protected by the First Amendment, particularly when it's a freedom of association for political purposes as the uh, NAACP. So it seems to me that that is a strong anti-surveillance um, uh, provision. I, I, the government, in my view, cannot uh, demand or surveil the membership of mosques unless it can go to a judge and show that there's probable cause to think that there's some uh, level of criminal activity. And the reason is that if, if you're revealed to have been the member of various mosques and so on, people may not join. I mean, there, there may be fear of, of reprisals of one sort uh, of another or, or greater government, government interference with your life uh, uh, and so forth. If I could just interject, that's not the rule the FBI follows. The FBI doesn't have to have any reasonable suspicion even before infiltrating a group, sending in an undercover. Well, they ought to read NAACP versus <laughs> Alabama. <laughs> yeah, and just one thing to add to that. I mean, when, when you think about the examples that a number of us have raised, um, what function the, the probable cause requirement does, it's not, it, it's not a blanket sort of turn away from government action or surveillance in an all or nothing way. It's a shifting of the burden, right? It, it's a requirement that government give a good reason before the action. And that's an important shift, right? It's not, it's, so it's not an all or nothing kind of uh, move between a, a world of total surveillance and a world of no surveillance. And it's but the government doing that is a judge, is not the law enforcement. So it's a checks right. and balances um, so, issue as well. As right, and so I think we, when, if we're thinking about it in terms of core values and in terms of uh, institutional structure, this is part of what uh, the mechanics of the Constitution we're trying to set up is uh, a set of uh, requirements of the burden of giving a good reason and a separation of powers requirement of who has to decide whether that reason is good enough. And that's how you then ensure that the action is then properly uh, and, and accountably pursued. And that's, I think, what we're trying to grapple with is what those requirements look like in the 21st century. Uh, let's turn away from history if you're, if, uh, if you're ready, and, and let's look at at uh, this current situation uh, today. Um, talking before the, the session with Sam, I, I have a feeling he and I are gonna disagree about this, but to me, this whole area of surveillance and security and privacy is not like most constitutional issues or checks, even checks and balances issues that I've looked at over the course of my life where, where the question is, what should the courts do? What should Congress do by way of oversight mechanisms? What should the president do and so on? And, and the reason it's different is in, in virtually every earlier case that I can think of, I and the public generally 
knew what the government was doing. We, we knew what the activity was that was under challenge as being unconstitutional or requiring checks and balances and oversight. My problem in this area is, and I, although I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in this area, I, I try to sort of keep up, I don't know what's going on. I really do not know the scope of the government's surveillance activities. I know some very well-informed people who were very surprised by the Snowden um, uh, uh, revelations that there were types of surveillance in there that they didn't think were going on. And they were well-informed uh, people uh, in the area. Moreover, I don't know what's going on in the way of oversight, because the special court that handles uh, uh, warrants uh, for the FIFA court for uh, certain broad areas of surveillance doesn't publish its opinions. They're secret. No, no one has any idea, except the judges themselves, of what the standards are that they're looking at for probable cause before they before they issue warrants, what the procedure is by which they, they uh, talk uh, and, and, and learn from law enforcement about what these uh, surveillance things. And I think there are very broad areas where we just don't really know what the scope of NSA surveillance is over our, our cell phones, all our finances. I, I mean, I, I assume that all of the interactions I have with my bank are completely <laughs> subject to uh, surveillance, even if there's no foreign element whatever uh, in there. But I don't really, I don't, I don't really know. So I feel a tremendous insecurity about setting out <laughs> oversight rules or checks and balances or even substantive limits from the Constitution on government surveillance because I just don't know what's going on. Uh, Sam, I know you disagree with that, but, uh, or I think you do. I do disagree as follows. First of all, let's talk about what's going on. So your bank transactions, or for that matter, your email transactions or your phone conversations are exposed not only to American surveillance authorities, but to global competitive intelligence agencies as well. There are at least five countries out there in the world, Russia, China, the UK. Even one of my conversations in the US? Well, what do you think Russian law says about the ability of the Russian government to access conversations that you have in the US or anywhere else? To the extent that there's the capability of obtaining that information, there's the will or the appetite for it, well, I suppose there's also the capacity to obtain it. So, so when we have this conversation, let's have it in the most honest way possible. There are at least five nation states in the world that have the capacity to more or less know anything they want to know about you, me, or anyone else, regardless of where those people are. So that's just kind of the basic facts of the conversation. Now let's talk about the oversight, or let's talk about the institutions. Sabil, you mentioned this earlier, and I know, Benno, you just mentioned it in the lead up to this kind of conversation just now. Um, I think it's the case in 2016 that our oversight institutions are more robust more informed, more akin in some meaningful sense to the ordinary practice of American government than they've ever been before. Now, I'm not going to go as far as to say that intelligence is therefore just a matter of 
the business of American public life no different from any other area. Of course, it's the case that intelligence entails a level of secrecy um, without which the whole project of intelligence, frankly, couldn't get off the ground. So it's there, and I'm not going to deny its existence. But having said all that, we've had more or less two generations of experience with congressional oversight. Imperfect, to be certain, but grant me that congressional oversight of everything or of anything is imperfect. It's not as though the baseline is congressional superiority in all domains, but con congressional kind of mediocrity and intelligence oversight. It's mediocrity across the board, I would say. So <laughs> oversight in the courts. You mentioned, Benno, the FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. I think what's characteristic of the last five years is that courts of general jurisdiction are much more involved than they've ever been in the oversight of intelligence. Indeed, the 702 program, one of the core programs that Edward Snowden exposed or talked about. I don't know that he exposed it, because after all, it was part of a statute that Congress passed, a matter of public legislation, but all the same. Um, that statute, or the surveillance that's undertaken pursuant to that statute, is on a collision course with the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will decide in the next two or three years what the Fourth <coughs> Amendment law is of American foreign surveillance in a way that they haven't ever decided before and that they specifically avoided. And will the court's decision be secret? No, this court's <laughs> decision will certainly not be secret. Indeed, there's pressure nowadays mm -hmm. for the FISA court to publish more of its opinions. There are more institutions surrounding the executive oversight of intelligence. I am not here to tell you folks, this is not a Panglossian kind of view of intelligence oversight. I'm not here to tell you that what we're doing in this country at this point in time is everything one would want of an intelligence oversight regime. What I am saying is that as compared, and I know Susan doesn't like my foreign comparisons, but all the same, I think they're meaningful uh, in a world in which we are measuring, after all, our performance against what liberal democracies do in similar situations. I would say American oversight is vastly more robust, vastly more mature institutionally, and vastly more developed than the oversight of intelligence in any other liberal regime. You can put German intelligence oversight, all the law of German intelligence oversight on a postage stamp. Okay? The American intelligence oversight regime at this point, like it or dislike it, flawed, indeed it's totally flawed, um, all the same. It's a robust, it's an elaborate set of institutions, and it's a, a set of institutions that I think is maturing um, and has matured a great deal over the last couple of years. We invite everybody to jump in and Respond yeah. to Sam. Um, I'd like to disagree. And again, I would like to compare us not to, you know, uh, the Germans actually care a lot more about privacy than anybody else right now because they know about the stuff. They care about privacy from the NSA, but they don't care about privacy from their own intelligence well, you know, services. But what I want to compare us to is the Fourth Amendment because where we start out, I think, with the framers is the Fourth Amendment, as we were saying before, has a couple of ideas about judicial oversight in particular. So um, Matt was saying before that the main constitution was about uh, building up the federal government power, but then the Bill of Rights is meant to check that power. And the Fourth Amendment in the Bill of Rights is counter-majoritarian. doesn't really matter what most people think, and it's not democratically determined. That's why the Fourth Amendment has been interpreted, as Benno has said, to require judicial oversight of searches and seizures. Before the government can search your house, they have to go to a neutral and detached magistrate and convince that magistrate that they have probable cause, and the magistrate will set the scope of the search. That's our Fourth Amendment norm. The Patriot Act search provisions depart from that in many different ways, and you know, there's just much more detail than we can get into tonight of all the variations. But most of them do not require any antecedent review. They don't require a probable cause in, the, in its traditional form, or even any suspicion in some circumstances. So 
Sam is saying that the courts of general jurisdiction are doing a good job of supervising this. I beg to differ completely. The ACLU has been trying since 2001 to challenge the legality and constitutionality of many of these different surveillance procedures. And the courts batted away challenge after challenge on the theory that unless you can show the court that you know that you have been subject to secret surveillance, you have no standing to challenge the secret surveillance. That's a clapper. Is that a catch-22? Yeah. yeah. No, that's, and they that's, just, yeah, they haven't gotten yeah. there. The Supreme Court has been a disaster because they can't deal with technology. They, and that was, you know, they affirmed that standing. So the courts have just, I just actually finishing an article that I call abjudication, which is very much about how the courts have absented themselves from what I think should be their counter-majoritarian role here, which means that where we're, we have to, are left for oversight is Congress and the executive branch. Congress has done nothing. You know, all that they've done is when the president has illegally started various um, search and sur surveillance programs, they have hearings and then they affirm that, you know, that the program should go ahead. There have been some modifications in the Freedom Act, which among other things yeah. does now require the, the, the case. The case Susan things. just referred to is Clappard. It was decided a couple of years ago, 5-4 decision. And it was a challenge to surveillance. Was it by the NSA? Amnesty International. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Uh, NSA or... And the court said because none of the plaintiffs could demonstrate that they had in fact been surveilled, they couldn't demonstrate that they had an interest uh, that required the stopping of surveillance. They but, but, show in all, any but in all fairness, the court also said that there will come a case, and there have been now cases percolating up from the federal district courts, there will come a case when a criminal accused will be able to show that evidence was used against that criminal accused that derived from foreign intelligence collection, and at that point, such a criminal accused would be a proper plaintiff for challenging the FISA oh. Amendments Act. And, and those cases, as I said, are working their way through the federal courts. An example of what Matt said was the slow, yes. <laughs> this well, very slow evolution. And, and that's where I was gonna go with this, yeah. which is, which is don't look for the courts to bail us out of yeah, these they're, tough they're questions. Not, the not. courts, I, I don't, we, we have very, very tough questions about, about the scope of uh, 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 permissible surveillance, for example, against terrorist threats here inside the United States. We have very tough questions about the uh, uh, legality of American intelligence efforts that are aimed abroad but that have some incidental effects on Americans. We have tough questions about how do we balance, or, or, or what, what, if anything, does the Constitution have to say about the government's right to analyze information that it's gathered about you, sometimes that you've voluntarily given to private companies, and it's just aggregated it, and now wants to, to analyze it. I think many of these questions, to me, do not have clear answers in constitutional law. These are policy questions that ultimately need to be answered in the, it, through the, the political process meaning the political branches, the president, and, and, and Congress. That's not to say the courts don't have an important role in setting certain outer bounds, but I think those outer bounds are probably further out than the way that Susan had described them. I mean, we can, we can go back and forth, but you know, just, just for example, um, uh, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the 1960s and 70s, when the Supreme Court was providing protection for Americans' communications, phone communications against surveillance. 
the, the, uh, 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 not the Supreme Court, but lower courts created a huge carve-out from the warrant requirement for so-called foreign intelligence collections, saying, well, if, if what the president is doing is listening not on Americans' calls trying to, 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 to fight crime, but uh, uh, to spy on, what, on what's going on abroad, or even uh, 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 try to catch spies here in the United States, that's a different category of, of surveillance, and a, and, and a warrant isn't required. And it was Congress that stepped in and said, we're not comfortable with this idea of totally unregulated executive surveillance here. So I think there's a lot more, I, I think there's a lot of room to try to work through some of these difficult questions. I don't think we're going to find the answers in the Fourth Amendment, the First Amendment. I think as imperfect as it is, it's going to be the halls of Congress and whoever the next president is who are going to be working out a lot of these issues. So, Bill, do you want to make a final yeah, comment, so just, and then we're going to turn to questions? Just a very quick comment on this last round, which I think I agree with a lot of what's been said. Um, but one other thing I want to put on the table, uh, we have another set of tools for ensuring accountable and effective government that is not dependent on the courts. Uh, and that is the tools around the administrative agencies and administrative law. So in the early 20th century, we had these new agencies created to do public policy, right, that was in areas that are more complicated than what Congress or the courts can handle. Um, and what I think is interesting about the transitional moment, perhaps, that we're in that maybe Sam alluded to is that uh, a lot of the internal practices within the executive branch around something like FISA is starting to approximate, but not quite, uh, the patterns of administrative law. So in administrative law, the way you ensure government actions are accountable is by uh, agencies have to show, have to give reasons based on their expertise for why a policy is designed a certain way. That's subject to later judicial review. And the agencies are staffed by uh, leaders who are appointed by a democratically elected executive. And that's the package that allows us to sort of treat those agencies as, as accountable, as responsive. Some of those tools are starting to migrate their way into uh, the FISA practice, and I think that's a good development. But, but a lot of those tools are not really there yet, and so I think it's not clear whether we've gotten to a, a, a complete solution. Uh, but we are getting to something that's beyond the courts, I think, and, and beyond the, the constitutional doctrine. Thank you. I have some questions that uh, came from the audience that um, I, I think it would be interesting to, uh, for us to discuss a bit. Um, the first one is, how do you feel about the way London has used cameras covering street traffic uh, as a means of security? Sam, let me give you that one, since you were with the police uh, department here. Not just London, it's also New York City. There are parts of New York City that are essentially kind of hemmed in by surveillance uh, tools of various sorts. Some of them are operated by the government, some of them are operated by industry. Um, I would say it's a fact of life. It's a feature of life. There's obviously the political kind of will to do it. I think in, in the UK, this is further to the point that I made at the outset, in the UK, I think the practice goes relatively unquestioned because of a relatively unquestioning disposition towards issues of surveillance. Witness the fact that the MI5, the domestic intelligence agency in the UK, has recently celebrated its 100th birthday. Meanwhile, we can't really come to any meaningful consensus opinion about the project of domestic intelligence here in this country. So I think it's, it's an artifact of 
kind of a British attitude towards surveillance. You see some of it, as I said, replicated in New York City, kind of owing to the same kinds of concerns. Um, but it's not, I think, yet the common practice of all American cities to do that. This type of surveillance, by the way, goes back to an old notion about your you have Fourth Amendment rights in your private sphere, but not when you're in a public. When you're in a public place, everybody can see you. Why shouldn't the police and the government sure. uh, be able uh, to see you as well? And, and drones, facial recognition, yep. right. license plate readers. I mean, cameras are, in a sense, the most uh, primitive <laughs> aspect of this of this, of this kind of aspect of, of technology. If I can make two points about that, and one is Sam was saying the cameras are there, and in some ways the um, more practical issues right now are follow up on what Sibyl was saying about agencies and administrative law. How long do you save the images that, you, that you're collecting? Who has access to them? How are they disseminated? How are they preserved, um, you know, et cetera, in terms of privacy? My second point is about one of the concerns that people have about government surveillance is the potential for abuse. Now, sometimes they mean, you know, the IRS, you know, investigates and they can prosecute you because you haven't, you know, paid your taxes or they might arrest you for something you've done. But there was some place in the UK, I wish I knew you know, which particular town this was, but somebody was studying their use of cameras. And in this particular place, they had cameras that could pan and zoom that the operators could, you know, focus in if they saw something that they thought was, you know, of interest. And the um, person who was visiting discovered that in 15% of incidents, the pan and zoom operators were using the cameras to focus on portions of women's anatomy that they found interesting. <laughs> and then they would print out the pictures and hang them up on the wall of the station. Now, you know, that gets back to the point that you were making before, Ben Oog. There's so much happening here in secret. And back to my Elaine Scarry quote, there's something wrong with society when what we do is exposed to the government and we don't know what they're doing with that information in the back room. Let me, uh, let me turn to the next question, which I'm eager to hear the panelists. Uh, what do you personally feel about Edward Snowden? <laughs> by, by, by that, I assume the question means, what do you think should be the legal consequences, if any, of his, uh, uh, of what he's done? Uh, Matt, you want to? Well, I mean, you know, it, sort of uh, traitor, hero. Um, I, I, I'm more at the, at the, not quite traitor, but certainly criminal end of the, of the spectrum. <laughs> I don't deny that some good, some good against some bad has come of his disclosures. I think uh, uh, it, it has, the disclosures have um, uh, prompted a, a, a public debate about certain uh, uh, activities. I think they've also undermined certain government uh, uh, intelligence activities by revealing uh, 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 means and methods. Uh, I think uh, I have a big problem. I have a big problem. I am I, very comfortable with the idea of, um, of whistleblowers going to their superiors or above their superiors when there is unquestionable wrongdoing going on. I am very uncomfortable with the idea of any government employee sort of um, uh, uh, arrogating to him or herself responsibility for saying, I'm totally uncomfortable with uh, all of this stuff that I see going on, and so I'm handing it over to, 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 to journalists. Sam, do you want to make a comment? Uh, I take Matt's point. I think he's rendered some valuable public service. I think a lot of officials have said as much. I think we know a lot more about this topic, Benno, further to your point about the secrecy. Um, 
I'd like to know a lot more about what has been turned over, what, what was actually in there. I mean, we know about the PRISM program, we know about metadata, but I think there's a lot of reason to suspect that what he walked away from the agency with um, was vastly more expansive than just information that might have implicated the delicate balances between security and liberty. And I guess I'll kind of go along with Matt in saying that the escape route through China and Russia doesn't strike me as, um, as exactly the right way to register a kind of civil libertarian protest against surveillance. Can I just say one thing? Um, well, yeah, I mean, maybe we're going down the line. Um, so in a lot of ways, I feel like the debate about Snowden just uh, tells us how impoverished our own public's uh, ability to hold government to account is in the first place, right? If we were doing this right, Snowden should have been irrelevant and not needed, right? Um, it's only because we are so in the dark as a public that, we that we're in this position of having to be like, well, it was really important that we learn the things we learned, but would we have wanted the information to come in this way? I mean, that to me is just an indication of, you know, that, of, that we're not getting the, the problem right. We can't be dependent on you know, kind of these uh, mana from, from uh, well, maybe not necessarily heaven, but at least, you know, from someone else kind of intervening uh, uh, suddenly so to tell us. Susan, is on. the ACLU prepared to defend He's Edward Snowden? He's a client of ours. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> <laughs> he is. Um, and one of the things I can tell you that you know, he said this, I think, you know, reasonably publicly. One reason why he decided to become a whistleblower was after reading the Supreme Court decision in the Clapper versus Amnesty International yeah, case. Yeah, yeah. And he said after, you know, um, that was the no the, standing case. The no standing. So that, and so after releasing <clears throat> the material showing that, you know, we're all under surveillance and all of our telephone information is being given to the government, he said to, you know, his contact at the ACLU, he said, so you think you have standing now? <laughs> and we did. And you're right after that, we brought a lawsuit against you know, the NSA, which was called ACLU versus Clapper, because we are a client of Verizon Business Services. And in that case, the Second Circuit ruled that the metadata bulk collection program was Ill illegal, that it was a violation of the statute. So I think, you know, Edward Snowden is a, a civil disobedient. I think he's just as frustrated as Sibyl that there wasn't another way for the information to come out. Uh, here's another question about a particular individual. What do you think about Hillary Clinton's emails? Matt, <laughs> you want to take a stab at that? Uh, um, well, listen, as a former government official, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trained to take quite seriously information security. I, I don't want to comment too much on the, on the controversy. Uh, I, actually, well, let, me, let me broaden it and say, you know, there's something, there's something that really, really does disturb me, and it's not just Hillary Clinton's emails, but we now see John Podesta's and and uh, 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 Colin Powell's and others, and we are entering a a, a, a phase where um, mass disclosure of complete caches of correspondence may become commonplace. Right? I mean, it's one thing if. Uh, I, I, and 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 some of some some of you may be happy with Edward Snowden walking out with a, a thumb drive or whatever full of, of 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 government documents, but it's also becoming more and more popular, uh, more and more possible for individuals, um, whether affiliated with governments or on their own or organizations, um, to do the same thing with uh, vast amounts of of our of our personal lives, um, I, I, and I got to say that. That scares the hell out of me. Uh, I, 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 actually, I actually think, notwithstanding some 
specific examples that, of course, Susan and others are able to point to of where, where, where government uh, uh, officials have mishandled a piece of information that they've had access to or a photograph or, 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 or telescopic view that they've had uh, 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 access to. Of course, there's going to be abuses and you need to police that and you need proper oversight to make sure that you minimize it to as low a level as, uh, as, as possible. But you know, when I, look at the, when I look at the Snowden disclosures and, uh, 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 and what they tell about the NSA, I think it's a, uh, it, it tells a story that uh, of an agency that while adopting, as many government agencies do, quite aggressive uh, uh, interpretations of their authorities. Aggressive interpretations of their surveillance authorities because we ask them to. The political process demands of the NSA, the FBI, other government agencies, that they stop every terrorist attack. That's what's demanded of them. So they, uh, they, they do interpret their legal authorities broadly. But it, the, 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 that set of documents also shows uh, uh, agencies that are very, very scrupulous about uh, uh, the application of that law including internal oversight and very, very careful procedures about how information is handled. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I was asked to, um, to wrap this up uh, at 7.30. It's, it's, been a, uh, it's, it's been a very enjoyable discussion. Um, and I want to thank my four panelists for a, a most uh, illuminating uh, discussion. Uh, Benno, may yes. I interrupt? I think... It's okay tonight. We have so many people to go on a little longer. Okay. All right. <laughs> and let let them fully answer okay. and you know another ten minutes okay. or so. Okay. Great. Here's a here's a question. <laughs> um, must cell phones be specifically identified in a search warrant, and can the owner be compelled to open it with their fingerprint uh, or their or their pin number? Well, there was just a recent Supreme Court decision. Uh, about that one, who wants to, who wants to answer that? <laughs> um, okay, well, I'll start. So, uh, there one Supreme Court decision that I think you're referring to was a case about a person who was arrested, and the police wanted to search the cell phone incident to arrest. Is that the one you're thinking? That's right. Yeah, okay. and, and they, what they had no the warrant. The Supreme Court said you have to get a warrant. You can't yeah. just search a cell phone because you've arrested somebody. And I actually wrote the ACLU amicus brief in that case, and I cited the Entick versus Carrington case a lot, where the right. court says a man's papers are his dearest things. You talk about you know then and now. Benjamin Franklin's desk contained what Benjamin Franklin's cell phone would now contain. So I think it's absolutely right that you do need to get a warrant to search a cell phone. Um, in terms of the fingerprint, it's really kind of interesting because um, there was a court recently that said that you can take somebody's fingerprint. They've actually been lifting fingerprints off of dead people. But you know they can actually take your fingerprint and use it to open your phone because taking a fingerprint is not considered to be a search within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. But they can't force you to give a PIN number. So this is an interesting thing for all of you, right, who thought your phone was safe with the fingerprint. Go with the number. Um. Here is the, the last question that I've been given. Do you think public figures forfeit a certain level of privacy? Is there legal precedent regarding a, a lowered right of privacy uh, for elected officials, celebrities, uh, et cetera? 
who would like to take a crack at that? Well, I, I will do it. I think <laughs> well, I like Matt, Matt spoke to that. I, I think yeah. certainly, certainly uh, uh, elected officials and other political leaders are public figures. They have, they have uh, much smaller rights to defend their reputations uh, under, under libel laws. They have to basically prove that people deliberately lied about them with malice. Um, and that applies also to, uh, uh, to celebrities and people Whose at least whose voluntary activities have put them into the uh, public eye, uh, and and I for one think that that's uh, that that is correct. I think public people who, who enter the public arena open themselves up to a level of debate and back and forth, challenge and so forth that private citizens who are minding their own business uh, should continue to enjoy uh, a greater scope of of uh, reputational and privacy rights. Um, <clears throat> did President Obama <laughs> violate the Espionage Act when he committed, communicated Ray government business with Hillary Clinton on an unsecret server using a pseudonym? Does anyone want to take that? I'm not familiar with the... <laughs> with well, that. Let me make a different comment about President Obama. Because, you know, of course, we, as we've all been saying, it is not ideal for people who know classified information to go out there and leak it and reveal it. It wasn't good, a good idea for Hillary Clinton to be careless about using her private email. It wasn't a, a desirable thing for any whistleblowers to come out and um, you know, give us information. But I, I think that um, President Obama has used the Espionage Act more to prosecute other people than any other administration in history. More than altogether. More than altogether, yeah. All more than altogether. Together. And he's been just throwing the book at, at people who are whistleblowers. So I think that relates to Edward Snowden, because Snowden, I think, would come back to the country and make a plea bargain if he could get a sentence that was not you know, 30 years. Uh, so you know, that's part of it. I think the other thing, too, in terms of the Espionage Act and this whole whistleblower situation is that the massive degree of government secrecy surrounding what the government is doing, you where you started us out, that we don't know what the government is doing, is also compounded by another feature that we haven't yet mentioned, which is something that was really part of the Patriot Act, which is that in addition to all these new surveillance powers, there were gag orders that were attached to a number of the different surveillance provisions. So if you get a national security letter or if you get an order to turn over information, you're never allowed to tell anybody that you got that information. And I think where this becomes relevant is there are a couple of cases that I've talked about in my book and elsewhere where librarians and internet service provider were served with national security letters back before the Patriot Act renewal hearings were about to take place. And they were not allowed to testify before Congress about their experience. Yeah, they got that they shouldn't say who the person was, but they weren't allowed to testify because there was that level of secrecy. Courts have been forced to take down docket entries you, know, you, know, you can't have, you have a docket entry here because this case is completely secret. It can't even appear on the dockets. So you know, the level of secrecy here, I think, is just concerning. Thank you. Uh, well, that is the questions we've been given. Dale, do you want to give us a benediction? Uh, I, I have a question. If, if, we, if everyone could quickly go over, Sabil Rahman, you mentioned that perhaps we would have time to talk about where all this is going in the future. If any of you have a, have a thought about the future, just you know, a few minutes each, um, and then we can wrap the whole thing up. Okay. Yeah, uh, thanks, Dale. I, um, Go ahead, so yeah, I, I had uh, just uh, maybe a couple things really quick to just leave us with, um, and appreciate that. Uh, 
So two, two things I'll just uh, throw on the table. For, first, in terms of where we go from here, I think a couple of us alluded to the rapidly changing nature of technology. And, and I think that's something we didn't get to unpack quite that much. But um, uh, it's something really to, to, to pay attention to, both in terms of uh, the, the kinds of uh, sophisticated uh, malware hacking surveillance tools that government can use, but also the, the role of private surveillance, right? Um, uh, the, the kind of vast caches of information that Facebook or Google, um, you know, kind of have on all of us, right? And what happens to that data? I think that's something that we'll have to increasingly grapple with. And uh, and and one, uh, the second point I just want to throw out there as a closing comment is, I think um, for a lot of the discussion, we sort of have assumed that the burdens of uh, surveillance fall equally on all of us as citizens. But that, of course, is not true, right? Um, there are particular uh, communities and constituencies who suffer that burden much more severely than others, right? I mean, I'm, I'm an American Muslim and I'm a New Yorker, um, and I don't like what it says about how, uh, what government thinks of my standing as a citizen of this country, uh, the ways in which our community is surveilled, right? Um, I think that's a problem. That's a moral problem to me. So um, I think we have to be really uh, careful when we're thinking about, you know, well, you have nothing to hide. Um, but you know, it's not, we're not all in the same boat. And in some ways, if, if we all face a specter of our emails being revealed in the ways that uh, Hillary Clinton's emails were revealed, I think we would all be rightly terrified about uh, what that might look like. And, you know, just imagine that times a thousand with uh, many worse consequences for Matt, Matt uh, why don't you make a closing yeah, comment? Yeah, I want we'll to echo a, a, a point that Sabil made about, um, a, a, about concerns about uh, uh, surveillance by the, the private sector. I mean, we've mostly been talking about, and Americans tend to worry about what the government is doing to invade our privacy. But we very, very freely give away a lot of information to the private sector. I mean, we were talking before about uh, uh, surveillance cameras. Um, and you know, wouldn't it be spooky if there were surveillance cameras everywhere? Well, we're all carrying the equivalent of a surveillance camera in, in, in our pocket. And for convenience, we're, 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 we're beaming back to Verizon and other carriers and other, other application uh, uh, platforms all kinds of information about ourselves. We get pop-up uh, 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 boxes asking, is it OK if I know what you know if if if, if to, to turn on your location and you'll get better service that way and we usually just say yes very few of us have read the user agreements that go with many of these things i know i i don't and i teach this stuff um <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, I, to, to me, one of the really interesting things that's going on is we're, you know, we're, we're deeply, deeply concerned about what, what the government is listening to, what the kind of uh, uh, you know, analysis the government is doing with data. But we all are very, very happy with the conveniences that when we log into Amazon, it says, we think you might be interested in the following books. Um, uh, and, and we usually are, because they've been analyzing what we've been doing on the web. We'd be freaked out if the government had a program that says, we've developed the following profile of your personality based on, uh, on, 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 on your purchases. But, but we're happy for Amazon to do it, because it's, it's convenient. Dale, do you want to give us a benediction, and we'll wrap it up? Uh, Let yes. me thank my fellow panelists yeah, right. here. That's what here. I was, was going to do. Thank Benno Schmidt, Susan Herman, Sabil Rahman, Sam, Sam, Sam Raskoff, <laughs> Matt Waxman. Um, thank you so much. This was terrific.
And uh, maybe we'll have a part two on some other similar <laughs> topic. Thank you all for coming.